Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On today's podcast, Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, reacts to the court decision yesterday in his own province. We'll also talk to Dan Kelly. Small business is not in favor of the Trudeau carbon tax and small business in Canada is not in favor of the Saskatchewan court decision. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We'll have an Alberta and BC journalist on the economics and the developing, shall we call it, war between the two provinces, Lauren Gunter and Mike Smith. You'll hear them both. Lauren from Edmonton, Mike from Vancouver. And Angus Reid polling shows that voters who decided for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals in 2015 are thinking of going elsewhere this October. That's some of what's on the podcast you're about to hear. Joining us on the program is the Premier of Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe. Mr. Premier, thank you very much for the time. Absolutely right. It's great to be here. So three to two is the decision of the court. And when you when you look at that decision, that absolutely validates the concern your province had and has and continues to have about Ottawa pushing provinces and that it needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we challenged uh, this, this federally imposed carbon tax on the basis that it wasn't uh, constitutional. Uh, what we received here yesterday was a split decision, ultimately, with uh, with three judges uh, indicating that it was, two judges uh, indicating uh, something quite different. There was a, a minority de- uh, report filed uh, by those two other judges where they indicated um, that that they actually did not believe that this this tax was constitutional. So we most certainly will be advancing this uh, our our case, appealing it to the Supreme Court within our 30 day uh, time time frame, and we'll see again that we have uh, reference cases uh, being launched across the nation now with uh, I think two, three now in the courts, and likely another one, maybe two coming. I read one of your tweets yesterday. And you pointed out that in provincial elections in the past year, in three provincial elections in the past year, the party which supported the Trudeau carbon tax lost, and the party standing up for citizens by opposing the Trudeau carbon tax won. Well, that's correct. Uh, when, when that question is on the ballot, and it is in certain areas of this nation, um, that's exactly what happens. If you, if you support the Trudeau carbon tax, you you do lose the election uh, and uh, if you uh, if you choose to stand up for the industries and the hard-working people uh, in your in your province or your your jurisdiction uh, they have been successful over the course of the last number of elections when when that question is uh, formed as a, as a ballot decision so I, I think you're likely seeing that question uh, start to develop into being a ballot question uh, this fall and ultimately we're going to continue with our our efforts through the court system um, but you're going to see uh, Canadians make a decision this fall as well. Premier, what's your response to the federal environment minister, who, uh, if I may paraphrase Ms. McKenna, seems to be saying uh, the court decided that we're the good guys, that we're doing this responsibly, that we're responsibly dealing with climate. And she has on several occasions urged you, uh, Saskatchewan and others in this country, other premiers, to come on over to their side and join them and help them in their fight. 
Well, what the court did decide was uh, that that climate change was an existential threat um, or an existential uh, circumstance. Uh, what they did not say in any way, shape, or form, or make any comment on that a carbon tax is actually in any way an effective way to deal uh, with that, which the courts sh- shouldn't uh, make a decision on that because uh, they just simply don't have uh, that information. What we have always said, uh, and what I said uh, to the minister, is Canadians should not confuse a climate action or taking action on climate change with the federal government's carbon tax. Those, those two conversations are very separate and different. And what we have always said is in Saskatchewan and other areas are saying as well, is we are taking action on climate change. And I've talked about uh, our, our initiatives many times on your show, Roy, and, and, and other areas uh, in, this, in this nation as well. We are most certainly taking action here in Saskatchewan and all of our industries to do better by by our, our not only our, uh, our, our reducing our emissions, but increasing our, our sequestration opportunities. Um, what we are, are not doing, and what we will continue uh, to ensure that we use every that we use every tool in our toolbox to actually block uh, this Trudeau carbon tax that is being imposed on us, because quite simply, it doesn't work here uh, in Saskatchewan. It, it it doesn't reduce emissions. That has been. Uh, that has been proven uh, by a study that was done by the University of Regina. And quite frankly, uh, what it will do is it will move jobs out of our jurisdiction into other areas of the world. And those very jobs that we move will quite likely be producing more carbon uh, wherever that product is produced in other areas of the world because of the way that we do it here. So Canadians should not confuse climate action with, with the federal government's carbon tax. They're very, very different. And the court did in no way criticize or minimize the uh, the sequestration program that Saskatchewan has in place. No, no, most most certainly. And really, the, the court question and the court discussion was not around uh, what we were doing uh, with, with, with respect to to um, you know to our opportunities in Saskatchewan and I've always said our industries are are very different here than they are in let's say Ontario and we've talked about the the manufacturing industry the auto manufacturing industry in Ontario is among the the very cleanest in the world it employs uh, so very many people in the world the steel industry we have a uh, some degree of the steel industry Saskatchewan Ontario and, and Quebec have a have a large steel industry and I, I would point to I believe it's the United uh, Steel Workers Association or the, the Canadian uh, Steel uh, Producers Association have put out some information where where a, a ton of steel that is produced in in Canada is roughly about 90 pounds of, of carbon is emitted when you move to China that same ton of steel is about 1300 pounds that, of carbon that is emitted and you get into India it's even even higher than that and so why are we taxing those industries and pushing those jobs to areas where they're actually going to add more emissions into the atmosphere and this is the the uh, the, the pointlessness of of this carbon tax that we have uh, tried to point out for so many months now, and we're going to continue to, uh, you know, in our effort to ensure that it's not, it's not imposed on our our hardworking Saskatchewan families. We have a plan that addresses our emissions, it addresses our opportunities. Uh, the government, the federal government, actually accepted our plan of prairie resilience, um, but then they felt they need to go further and, and tax gas and home heating fuel and, and, and essentially just tax families here in the province. So we'll be off to the Supreme Court, same same conversation, different court. Premier, the decision made yesterday by the court, how does it affect the uh, the people of Saskatchewan immediately? Well, what it, what it means is uh, unless the federal government... Uh, 
uh, makes a decision that they allow the courts uh, this, this to proceed through the courts, uh, that the, the people of this province will ultimately have to pay this federal this federal tax until we're able to find our day in the uh, in the federal court. Now, there's going to be a few other provincial cases happen likely uh, before uh, we get our day in in the Supreme Court. Um, but this conversation ultimately is going to continue. It's going to continue into uh, this October when we see a federal election. And I suspect it will be on the ballot at that point in time. And at that point in time, we'll see Canadians um, make a decision with respect to uh, not only the carbon tax, but the, the general ideology that is uh, coming on, on our industries, it, our wealth-generating industries, uh, not just in Western Canada, but but across this nation. One more question for you. Have you spoken with Premiers Ford and Kenny about this? I have, and I will again, as well as other Premiers. Premier Higgs and I had a conversation, um, and uh, and other Premiers across across the nation. Again, we, we talk about the, the nonsensical approach to, to this particular tax and how impactful it is on, on families in their jurisdictions as, as well as uh, in Saskatchewan. But what other opportunities uh, do we have? Because this is one of a of a suite of challenges that we have we're having uh, in a discussion with for example uh, bill c69 the the bill that will ensure there are not only no more pipelines but likely no more no more potash mines no more no more uh, industrial projects across the uh, nation we had our minister of energy and resources uh, presenting to the senate in regina on bill c48 i don't know why we have uh, a tanker ban on the west coast but not the east coast of this nation and it just uh, there is a you know a growing uh, a growing sentiment that there is uh, a number of industries wealth generating wealth generating generating industries that are are have contributed to the success of of communities and families uh, that are under siege uh, by this federal government with a number of the policies that they're putting forward and and we're going to have further discussions about how we can resist those policies if you will and uh, and but also discussions about how we can ensure we are doing right by that next generation and those are active Premier, thank you so much for the time. I, uh, we do have a concern about the divisive attitudes that have sprung up in this country, in particular over the last few years, and that's something I've spoken with you about and with uh, Premier Higgs uh, from New Brunswick. You've both been on this program and dealt with it, and it's something that we have to deal with, with nationally, and uh, um, Mr. Trudeau has responsibility for if a lot could, of that. If I could, Roy, one comment on the, on the divisiveness. Um, we have put not we have not put uh, you know new policies forward. The carbon tax, uh, Bill C sixty nine, Bill C forty eight, all policies, ideological policies with poor environmental outcomes, massive economic uh, negative mes- economic outcomes uh, possible by those policies that have been put forward by the federal government. There's provinces that have and industries that are indicating what this impact will actually uh, be in a ne- negatively to to ultimately. Uh, people that are working in these industries that live in the communities that I represent and others. Um, this is the; these are the divisive policies that have been put forward. What you are seeing is rallies across the nation of people that are defending uh, their livelihood. Premier Mo, always good talking to you. Thank you for making the time today. You have a wonderful weekend, Rick. Thank you. You too, Premier Scott Mo from Saskatchewan. Now, um, Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent the small and medium-sized businesses in this country. They are the number one employers in Canada, as we've been saying for years. And Mr. Kelly wrote an op-ed piece, which uh, was headlined, 
Ottawa leaves small businesses to pay the heaviest price for its climate agenda. And yesterday, when the Saskatchewan court ruled as it did, the Saskatchewan CFIB expressed, quote, extreme disappointment, end quote, in the court's decision. Dan Kelly, president, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dan, thank you very much for the time. Happy to be here. So let's talk about uh, the the op-ed, the point that you make in the op-ed that the uh, federal government, Ottawa, leaves small businesses to pay the heaviest price for its climate agenda. What are the nuts and bolts of that? So when the feds introduced the federal carbon backstop, and that's the carbon tax that exists in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and New Brunswick, they did it in a different way than some of the carbon taxes or carbon pricing schemes that had been in place in Alberta, in British Columbia, or, or, or even Quebec. They did it by basically providing a rebate to consumers. Now, you know, those of us, I live in Ontario, I'm in Calgary today, uh, but but those of us in, in those four provinces have been hearing the advertisements from the federal government saying that, good news, you're going to be getting back more in terms of a rebate than you're actually going to pay in the carbon tax, so you don't have to worry about this at all. Now, there are some of us that aren't sure that that's actually going to come to be, that we're actually going to end up paying more indirect and indirect costs anyway. But if we believe the federal government, that consumers are going to get more than they actually pay, who is going to be getting less than they actually pay? So we looked into that at CFIB and discovered that, of course, once again, it is small and medium-sized firms, those that I think are often the, the, the least able to pay for some of these new taxes, they're going to be paying a ton, almost 50% of the total carbon tax take, and getting back very little. In fact, only 7% of the rebate pool is targeted at them. Of course, that you know that that's one thing that we're paying. Way, small business owners are paying way more than they're going to get back in the carbon tax. The other thing that's adding insult to injury for our members is that of that little 7% rebate that they promised back to small business, we've been in the tax now for a month. And there is zero information about what that small rebate is going to look like for these very same small business owners. So that is uh, insulting, I think, to a lot of small firms who are already feeling that the federal government has long abandoned them with small business tax changes that happened in 2017 and a host of other issues. And this carbon tax will affect them financially, bottom line. It sure will. I mean, this, this when fully phased in, is going to be $6 billion. And so if half the burden's coming from small firms, that's $3 billion of new tax money coming out from business owners, mostly small and medium-sized business owners, in just four Canadian provinces. And, of course, you know, with uh, the change in government in Alberta and, and uh, the new Premier Kenny's uh, promise to, uh, to pull Alberta from its existing carbon tax, one expects that the feds would then impose the federal carbon backstop in Alberta as well, which means the take would even be larger. So, Dan, what does this do to the, uh, and we talk, you and I talk about this uh, periodically, the sense of confidence or the lack of a sense of confidence that exists in the small business community in this country. And, and I mean in a sense of confidence as far as the stewardship of the regulations and the rules they have to follow is concerned. What, what uh, has the last month or the last couple of months and then yesterday's decision, what impact will that have not only on the sense of confidence in, in Saskatchewan where 91% of small businesses or CFIB members supported the, uh, the government, but, but nationally, what's, what's, it, what's it going to do? What impact is it having on the sense of confidence of small business? 
Well, I think there's three lenses that I'm looking at, uh, that, and I'm certainly hearing from members. I, I, I've got certainly an earful from uh, some of our reps that are visiting Alberta members uh, about the, the prospect of the federal carbon tax here in this province. But in the existing provinces, in the four that, that it's imposed in today, uh, there are three ways that we're looking at this. One is from a fairness perspective. It's deeply unfair to expect small firms to pick up the tab, the lion's share of the tab, uh, for the carbon tax, and you meanwhile give rebates larger than the amount they pay for to consumers, exempting all sorts of big emitters from the carbon tax uh, in, in large part. The second is from a competitiveness perspective. If you're a small business, a small manufacturer, and you're competing against uh, uh, somebody that is in the U.S. and has no carbon tax whatsoever, that, again, sets your business back, means that you're not going to be able to create the jobs in your own home province uh, or, or expand your operations because you're now you've got one hand tied behind your back, courtesy of the government. And then the third lens, the, the third thing that I'm, I'm hearing more and more about is just the sense of anger that is out there about small from small business owners about what has gone on with government over the last number of years. Remember, I mean, the, the federal liberals promised that they would lower the rate of taxation on small business to nine percent during the election campaign. They canceled that in their very first budget, then introduced the largest number of tax changes for small business, negative tax changes for small business in 40 years. Then, after the pushback, kind of pulled back from that, reinstated their promise, taped it back together. Then they increased Canada pension plan premiums. Now there's a new carbon tax. The hits to the small business community over the last number of years have been enormous, and many of them are are feeling really, you know, that, that the government doesn't appreciate the contributions that these small and medium-sized, independently owned and operated businesses are, are playing. So those are some of the some of the things we're hearing from small business owners, hoping that the courts would uh, come to their aid with the Saskatchewan case. It was close, uh, but mm-hmm. not there yet. Three to two, and I'm going to say this to Premier Moore in the next hour, but three to two really validates the challenge. It, it sure does. I mean, look, uh, there were there were some that believed that this is a uh, you know, if you believe the federal government that this is an open and shut case, that the feds have absolute power to do what they're planning to do, uh, I think when you look at the decision, it shows that there is at least some question as to whether that is true or not, whether at a more senior level of court, when it gets to the Supreme Court or these other court challenges that are happening in, from the other provinces, whether or not they will be successful it remains to be seen. Um, but I, but. But our members are behind their provincial governments in challenging the federal government's authority uh, on, on, on imposing this carbon tax. But even in advance of that, we're calling on the feds today to get back to the bargaining table. I mean, small business owners are on board to try to do something to combat climate change. They're on board. They've, they've done a lot already to try to indru- reduce their environmental footprint. And they're, I think, from what I'm hearing from members, they're willing to do more, just as Canadians are willing to do more. The way that the federal carbon backstop has been administered, though, is an absolute nightmare, uh, imposing all sorts of new costs on on small and medium-sized firms across the country with very little relief. Well, with this government, it's not enough if you support uh, living responsibly and environmentally responsibly. You have to do it their way. Well, and, and look, there are many pathways to this. They have provided some flexibility to some provinces, so we're not getting the same reaction right now in Nova Scotia, uh, PEI, and, and Newfoundland and Labrador, where there have, there, has, there have been other approaches taken. That's, 
that's really what the Fed should be doing, is working with these very same governments. The, I, I've not heard anything from from the Ford government on Ontario to uh, to any you know to the governments of of Manitoba, the New Brunswick, uh, or Saskatchewan, or even Alberta, that they're unwilling to do things to try to address some of the root causes here. But there needs to be some flexibility applied. There needs to also we need to also recognize that there are consequences of some of the actions that we are taking. And I'm I'm not sure imposing the burden on on small and medium sized firms giving exemptions to larger emitters, rebating consumers back more than they're supposedly paying is the way to go. And buying refrigerators, $12 million worth of refrigerators for a very wealthy company. Man, that just threw, (laughs) to use the analogy, threw some more carbon onto the fire for small business owners when the the federal government announced this rebate. that That was just brutal. That was just absolutely brutal. What a communications nightmare. Uh, and, and honestly, it, defend, it offended so many small business owners. So we looked into the program, Roy, that, that provided the source of funding. There was uh, almost, a, I think it was a half a billion dollars in this low carbon, low, uh, low carbon economy fund that the federal government put together. It's a closed fund. They already, they, you know, the, the applications had, see, had stopped. However, when we looked into it, get this. The federal government promoted this as a fund available to small and medium-sized businesses with as few as one employee. So it sounds great. You can apply to get some money back to try to, you know, buy yourself a new freezer in your small little independent grocery store or the little corner store that you happen to operate. However, when we pour through the details at CFIB, our research team in Ottawa, found out, looking at the footnotes here, that the minimum grant that you would have to take from this fund was $500,000, and to get that $500,000 minimum grant, you as the business owner would have to spend $2 million (laughs) in your business. (laughs) I mean, why would on earth would you promote a fund to small firms with as few as one employee and then require them to spend $2 million minimum to be able to access the fund? And I gotta tell you, when we found that, it just it just reinforced for me why so many of these government grant and loan programs are so ridiculous and why small businesses give them a pass altogether. So I'm not optimistic when the feds get their act together and announce their new 7% rebate for small, medium-sized firms that it's going to be any better because the track record on grant programs, quite apart from just this government, from governments in general, is brutal. Dan, just uh, about 90 seconds more. Thank you for taking the time, by the way. I really appreciate always speaking with you because your members are the number one employers in this country. But when we say that, how many Canadians does small and medium-sized business, the small and medium-sized business community, nationally employ? So uh, small businesses are Canada's largest source of private sector jobs. Almost 70% of private sector jobs are with small firms, companies with fewer than 50 employees. And that's 8 million Canadians, larger than any other group, uh, any other employer group in the country. So what's good for small business is good for employees. And the point that we keep trying to drive home to government, uh, we we should be concerned about the middle class. The way to improve the middle class is helping small and medium-sized firms succeed in Canada and not tying their hands behind their back. Yeah. And not creating a negative environment for them where they may get out of the business earlier than they had initially in, uh, intended to because 
because of the weight of the regulation and all of the obstacles they face. Dan, I thank you so much for the time. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again. Happy to do it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Dan Kelly, President CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Let's get it to the, the roots of this British Columbia, Alberta issue. Where are they? Where are we? What's likely to happen? What could happen? And how worried should we all be about this Alberta-British Columbia relationship? Joining me on the program, and I'm so glad they are, Lauren Gunter from the Edmonton Sun, one of the great columnists. Uh, uh, always enjoyed your opinions, Lauren. You, you, you call it like you see it. And man, there aren't enough people who do that. Good yeah, to have you, you. so. And Mike Smith, who joins us regularly from Vancouver, columnist, great columnist with the Vancouver province and talk show host at CKNW. Your weekends belong to me, Mike. <laughs> My pleasure, Roy. No problem. Thanks so much for joining us. So let's start with this. And I'm going to start with you, Lorne, uh, from the Alberta perspective and then the broader picture as well. How worried should we be, if worried is the right word, about the Alberta-British Columbia relationship? Well, I'm fairly worried, although it's hard for me to gauge. There's an awful lot of surface anger, but there's still, I think, a great deal of of uh, friendship between the two. I, I don't think there are two other provinces in the country that are as friendly to one another, usually, as uh, as Alberta and and. Uh, BC. I mean, there's a there's an old joke about a, a Alberta farmer who, uh, with along with his spouse, uh, retires out to British Columbia, and after a few months, some friends come out and and they're visiting them, and they say, "Oh, it's so beautiful here. They look at those mountains." And he said, "Yeah, they're nice, but they get in the way of the view." Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind. Of, I mean, Albertans have already thought of of uh, of uh, BC as our, our closest neighbors, and so it it, it doesn't come naturally. Uh, to Albertans to be unhappy with uh, with British Columbia, and I still think it's it's reserved mostly for the the Horgan government, and it's it's uh, feeling squeezed. I think to be extra green by uh, its voter base and by the fact that it's held in power by the Green Party. So it's hard for me to gauge. And there's a lot of people who say, "Oh, let's just shut off the taps now," and then people say, "Well, yeah, it's BC," and they say, "Oh, yeah, you're right." You know, and I'm not sure I really want to squeeze them. So. Um, I think Jason Kenney this this week, the new premier of Alberta, uh, proclaimed the shut off the taps law to wake people up to the fact that it could really happen. But uh, they have taken no steps at all to uh, to implement the law. Yeah, it's been it's been hours since he became premier, and I people are no. I, I read a piece the other day, I think it was yesterday, saying, "Well, what's he done? <laughs> Wait yeah. a minute, he just got sworn in on Tuesday." Yeah. He's done a lot, considering he just got sworn in on Tuesday. Mike, what about you? As you look at the situation from British Columbia, the relationship that is uh, that is kind of snarky relationship that is uh, that has uh, emerged between British Columbia and uh, and and Alberta, uh, should we be concerned about uh, the relationship at this point? I mean, the rest, we, the collective Canadian, we. Oh, I think certainly we should be concerned for sure, Roy. And there was a. The first in a series of what I, th- I think will probably be uh, many dueling news conferences this week between John Horgan, the premier, the NDP premier here in British Columbia, and Jason Kenney, the new premier in Alberta. And, you know, these are a couple of alpha male politicians sizing each other up here. And uh, they, I guess they tried to kind of say, well, 
we want to be good neighbors, so we want to be nice. And they both said, well, we had a cordial and respectful conversation on the phone. And John Horgan even complimented Kenny's sense of humor, say we had a couple of good laughs on the phone. And I don't know. I mean, do you think the, you think this is a bromance? I don't think so. I, I think the bromance will be between Kenny and, and guys like Doug Ford in Ontario. I think these guys are on a collision course here. Now, when it comes to the turn off the taps legislation, Kenny has made clear that that's kind of a, a weapon of last resort, and he's not going to do it unless it's kind of the last card he's got to play. And British Columbia immediately launched a lawsuit against Alberta claiming that the whole thing is unconstitutional anyway. And I talked to some legal experts this week, Roy, who said, you know, probably the Horgan government's right. BC will probably win in court, and this turn off the TAPS law will be thrown out. And that may happen, but I, I still think that the two provinces are clearly at odds over this pipeline. The funny thing I find about this legal threat from B.C. is that uh, the B.C. government has said we think it's unconstitutional because you're not allowed to restrict interprovincial movement of refined goods. Well, uh, that argument cuts both ways. I mean, you can't yeah. stand in the way of the interprovincial movement of unrefined goods. I think it's very funny that in the last say, seven to ten days, the B.C. government has started to use the word refined when it's talking about interprovincial transportation of goods, because I'm guessing their argument is going to be, we can't stop shipping B.C. the gasoline and diesel fuel that we send them. About 55 to 70 percent of, of B.C.'s gasoline and diesel fuel comes from Alberta on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Right. Uh, their argument is going to be, we can't stop that. But they can stop us sending bitumen oh, that we're going to sell to refineries overseas. Oh, listen, there's, overseas. there's no there's no lack of hypocrisy going back and forth oh, yeah. here for sure. And I'll tell you what, if Alberta ever did turn off the taps, we'd be absolutely hooped here because you're right. Most of our refined fuel comes directly from Alberta through the pipeline, and the little bit of gas that we do refine locally, there's one refinery in the Lower Mainland of BC. They get their feedstock, their crude oil also from Alberta and also through the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So, so it's actually, when you add it all up, it's over 80% of the fuel in British Columbia is sourced ultimately from Alberta. So if, the, if Kenny ever did turn off the taps, it would be absolutely devastating to British Columbia and our, and our economy here. So um, the government here has not taken, taken that lightly at all. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at the legal, the legal pleadings that were filed by the B.C. courts uh, this week on this. And they said that it's this critical supply from Alberta that's driving some of the high prices mm -hmm. that we see for gas in Metro Vancouver right now. The pleadings didn't say anything about gouging. This week, Premier John Horgan said, oh, the problem is the gouging by the big oil companies, these big greedy gas refineries are taking too much profit. There is nothing mentioned like that in the court pleadings by BC this week. It was all about the very tight supply, almost all of it coming from Alberta. Guys, let me take a quick break, and I want to ask you this. Where, where, do the, where does the voter fit into all of this? And Lauren, in, in, in Alberta, uh, Albertan voters are, I think, pretty determined that they want their premier to do what he said he was going to do. And there's, there's, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of push that's being directed toward, uh, toward Edmonton and toward uh, Mr. Kenny. And, and uh, Mike, I, I, 
I can't imagine the British Columbia voters are not really, really paying extremely close attention to this and knowing fully well that the dynamics of that government are the NDP is propped up by one man, Andrew Weaver from the Green Party. Right. Uh, guys, before I ask you about the voter impact and the voter push that Mr. Kenny's getting from Alberta and what will happen uh, as far as British Columbia voters are concerned, mm-hmm. last hour I spoke with um, Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, and we talked about the court ruling yesterday, and then we ended the conversation by uh, bringing up the issue of the divisiveness in Canada, which Mr. Moe has spoken to before, as I mentioned. And he wanted to get at that and speak about it a little bit on in the interview in the last hour. Here's what he said. If I could, Roy, one comment on the, on the divisiveness. Um, we have put not we have not put uh, you know new policies forward. The carbon tax, uh, Bill C sixty nine, Bill C forty eight, all policies, ideological policies with poor environmental outcomes, massive economic uh, negative mes- economic outcomes uh, possible by those policies that have been put forward by the federal government. There's provinces that have and industries that are indicating what this impact will actually uh, be in a. Ne- negatively to to ultimately uh, people that are working in these industries that live in the communities that I represent and others um, this is the these are the divisive policies that have been put forward what you are seeing is rallies across the nation of people that are defending uh, their livelihood so Mike Smith Lauren Gunter there's uh, the premier of Saskatchewan and divisiveness is not something that he's reluctant to talk about so we've got BC and we've got Alberta we're talking about that then the voters come into play and the role they have and then I thought we can't forget Ottawa's role in all of this so uh, Lauren the BC at least the Alberta voter the impact the Alberta voter has on uh, Premier Kenny and then where does Justin Trudeau fit into all of this mix and, and again, the bigger picture, our overall picture is Alberta and B.C. Can you put all that together for us? Uh, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious where the Alberta voter stands provincially. We, we uh, just resoundingly uh, ejected our first and only ever NDP government, uh, largely because uh, they agreed at least ideologically with with Trudeau on what to do about the environment and uh, pipelines and, and didn't raise too many serious objections. I mean, the, our Premier Rachel Notley was, while she was in office uh, the last year and a bit, uh, fairly uh, strident in favor of pipelines, but she would never, ever criticize Trudeau, who was as big an obstacle to, to pipelines as anyone, including John Horgan. Uh, so she's out because of that, uh, and the uh, uh, the UCP, the Kenny's party, the United Conservatives, won by 22 percentage points, so uh, it wasn't close. Uh, there are outside of Edmonton only four MLAs who aren't UCP, uh, and uh, not a single one in a rural part of the province, which is about 40 seats. So uh, that's what the voters think on the provincial level. On the federal level, as unpopular as Rachel Notley was uh, in Alberta, Justin Trudeau is much more unpopular. So uh, when we get a chance in the fall to express, as voters express our our uh, report card on Justin Trudeau, it'll be Fs all around. I, the Liberals elected four uh, MPs here uh, federally last time, 
Uh, one of them has been suspended from caucus because of, of uh, sexual remarks that he made. Another's been evicted from caucus because of groping that he did with an intern. And the other two, uh, one's a minister and uh, one's a fairly prominent Edmonton MP, but I think they're all four of them going to be gone. So uh, from that standpoint, we get to express our anger. But what good does that do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so the, 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 I think the, the next question after what do the voters feel is how much can that anger actually propel things along on a regional and national? Okay. Basis? All right. So uh, it was a convoluted question that I asked, Mike, but uh, take what you will from it and, and, and uh, answer it any way well, you, you choose to. Well, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals did pretty well in British Columbia in, in the last election. They won a, a record number of seats here, and he wants to hang on to those seats big time here in B.C. So a lot of people are expecting Trudeau to be out here playing Santa Claus over the next few months and giving us money for stuff, and that'll be nice for British Columbia. Uh, the, Liberal, the federal Liberals are doing a little better in the polls here in British Columbia than they are doing in the rest of Canada. Don't forget, we already got a provincial carbon tax here, so the federal carbon tax would not apply, so that issue is kind of neutered on this side of the Rocky Mountains. And I'll I'll tell you, Roy, I've attended and covered some Trudeau events here in British Columbia, and despite the guy's troubles, despite Lav's scam, despite how badly he's doing in the polls right now, I'll tell you, People, there's a lot of people in BC still show up for this guy and go gaga. He's he's still got the kind of the movie star thing going with some people. So I, I think a lot of it's going to come down to an election campaign. I would not count Trudeau out. I think he's going to do very poorly in in Alberta. I agree with Lauren there, but I think he could hang on to some seats here. It's good, but it could be close. Okay, in the 60 seconds we have left, is uh, turn off the taps legislation, a showpiece, and nothing more than that, Lauren. No, I mean I think there's a there is a, a an outside chance that the, that the provincial government will use it, but uh, they don't intend to use it anytime soon. And that, circumstances would have to worsen with BC for us to to, to implement okay. that. I think. Okay. Same I question. I think it'll be I think it'll be thrown out by the courts before he gets a chance to use it. Okay, guys, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you it. Thank you, guys. Bye bye. Lauren Gunter, Mike Smith, Mike Smith, Lauren Gunter on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. In a protest against the Ford government at Queen's Park in Toronto, a guillotine was displayed and a mock execution of Ontario Premier Doug Ford took place and caused the Premier and his government to speak out, as well as other politicians like federal NDP MP Charlie Angus. The father of an autistic student sent uh, emails about what took place, including to the provincial NDP because there were NDP MPPs who were part of that um, entire protest, even though I understand they weren't part of the mock execution. But Steve's joined, Steve joins us. His son, as I said, is, is, is living with autism. And Steve, uh, thank you for taking the time. And what's the effect of, of, that, of that, um, that ex- fake execution or faked execution of Doug Ford? What effect is it having on your son and why? Well, son, actually, I think the effect it had on him was basically the same effect it had on anybody. He was shocked. Actually, that night he he called up another buddy of his that has Asperger's to, you know, to discuss it and get his point of view on it, and you know, because they kind of see things through a different filter. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it just came up to they couldn't really understand why somebody would do something like that, and uh, you know, he knows the premier personally, so kind of it was an added dimension. Like you know, he thinks he's a very nice man. Why would somebody, you know, perpetrate an act like that? 
yeah. even if it's a fake like that. It, it doesn't make sense to him. So, so, so it's affecting him personally and, and, and very directly. Yeah, well, even like in school, I sent another letter to Sam Hammond, the president of the EFTO, about the teachers wearing uh, like big buttons supporting the union in the school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he finds that, you know, even more disturbing, really, because those are the teachers he's like with all the time, right? And they're anti, you know, for or anti-government. And my son's, you know, he's not. He's actually a member of the Conservative Party. <laughs> he's got to look at these signs, yeah. like, all day. So what do you oh. say? To, so what do you say to your son? What's your message to your son when he's upset by what's by what he's seeing, and 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 talks to you about it? What do you say to him? Okay, I told him right at the very beginning of the. Uh, you know, the campaign, the general election, you know, there's going to be a lot of things said. And then after that, it's going to probably die down. But right, it's just getting worse. So I just keep reinforcing, you know, the people that are saying this are just, you know, they don't represent the majority of the people. It's just like the majority of the teachers at a school don't wear, you know, the big union buttons on them. It's Mm -hmm. like 10% of them. So you just got to take it you know, look at it in perspective. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, and I, and I thank you for joining us, Steve, and, and, and we need people to maintain a perspective and remember what the what the results of their actions can be, and in, in the case of your son, son, turned out to be, as far as what happened at Queen's Park. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank Thanks, you, Steve. Roy. Yeah, I just felt it was necessary to, to remind. You may think it's entertaining or somehow meeting an objective to stage a fake execution of a, of a premier, but it's way, way, way over the line, and you're affecting, affecting many people, and Charlie Angus, Sandy PMPP, has been very direct about this being unacceptable. What happens in 2019, based on, uh, if you look at the numbers from 2015, what happens? Where will liberal voters go? Those who voted for Mr. Trudeau and the liberals in uh, 2015, how are they likely to vote in 2019? The Angus Reid Institute did federal polling on this, and uh, the headline of the story, and you can find it on my Twitter feed, at the Roy Green Show. No, no, it's at Roy. What am I doing here? Uh, Yeah, at the Roy Green Show. So, (laughs) you can find it there. The, uh, the article, the piece from Angus Reid, liberal support continues to drop as left-of-center voters search for alternatives. Ian Holliday is a research associate with Angus Reid, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. Ian, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for having me, Roy. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we look at uh, the coalition on the left, as it were, that elected Mr. Trudeau, certainly did a lot to elect him and provide a majority government, the Progressives Coalition. It's fracturing, you find out. Please uh, tell us what's going on. Sure. So let's go with the, the overall top-line vote numbers. If there was an election held tomorrow, what would the results look like? Well, the popular vote would look like 38% for the Conservatives, 25% for the Liberals, 18 for the New Democrats, 11 for the Greens, and 5 for the Bloc Québécois, which is 22% there in Quebec. Okay, and the uh, People's Party of Canada, do they show up at all? They do. They register about 3% in this poll, okay. um, which is uh, pretty consistent with, with how they've been polling in uh, a lot of our, our recent uh, work. And so 
suggests that while there is this fragmentation happening on the left, there is not, at least so far, a similar process happening on the right with uh, the conservatives and uh, the People's Party under Maxime Bernier. Okay. What I found also interesting in, this, in the survey, in the, in the polling that you did, 44% of those who voted for Trudeau in 2015 disapprove of him now, and 51% plan to vote for a party other than the Liberals or are undecided? Please speak to that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, a thing called vote retention. and It's one of the, the best ways to sort of measure the dynamics of a vote as you head into an election. Um, and when you look at the Liberals, they're only retaining about 49 percent of the, the people who voted for them back in 2015. And so the, the immediate question becomes, well, where is that remaining 51% going? Well, we find that, that about 10 percentage points, 10% uh, of, of 2015 liberals are going to the conservative party, but about twice that many, in fact, more than twice that many, are going either to the NDP, 17% of 2015 liberals now say they prefer the new Democrats, or to the Green Party, 9% of 2015 liberals say that they now prefer the Greens. And there's a, a large chunk, a one in ten chunk that uh, would like to, you know, they say they're, they're either undecided, uh, they don't know how they're going to vote, or they, they're just going to stay home. Okay. Uh, Ian, does, do different regions of Canada and do demographics and does gender come into play in these numbers you've just described to us? There are huge differences across the country uh, based on some of these these factors. So mm -hmm. region, I think, is one of the more obvious stories. We know that uh, Alberta and the Prairies are conservative strongholds, and they uh, are still that way in this poll. Um, but we find the conservatives leading in every province except Quebec, where they are pretty close to the liberals in our poll. We have them a little bit higher than some other pollsters do. We have the conservatives at about 26 percent in Quebec, and we have the liberals at 28 uh, there. Um, but but sort of more notable for us anyway than the regional picture, which is fairly predictable based on what we know about, you know, the Canadian political landscape, um, is the sort of massive difference that we see uh, between age and gender groups. So if, for example, the only people who voted were women under age 35, we would see a new Democratic Party majority in this country. Forty percent of young women say that they plan to vote for the NDP. But no other demographic group comes even close to that level of support for, for that party. Young men, for instance, uh, are kind of all over the place. They're, they're the place where we see the highest number for the People's Party of Canada. We see about one in ten men under 35. 35 saying they would vote for Maxime Bernier's party, 28% for the Conservatives, 22% for the Liberals, 19 for the NDP, and 17% for the Greens. So young men are kind of all over the place, as I said, whereas young women very concentrated on the left. People 35 and over, and especially people 55 and over, are much more likely to be in the Conservative camp. And there's a huge split among the middle age group between men and women. 52% of men in the 35 to 54-year-old age group say that they are planning to vote for the conservatives. It's only 29% for women that age. And the support among women for liberals and for the NDP is about double where it is among uh, men of the same age. Wow. So it's a real, it's a real stir fry. 
it's a little all over the place. Yeah, yeah. it is. Now, um, what is causing the liberals to lose their 2015 support? Going back to those numbers, 44% who voted for Trudeau in 2015 disapprove of him, and 51% plan to vote for a party other than the liberals or are undecided. What is causing the rot in, in, in the party, or the liberals to lose their support from 2015 among progressive voters? Is it all Trudeau? Um, it seems to be a lot of Trudeau. Um, certainly, I mean, you opened this segment with uh, his comments about uh, the, the SNC-Lavalin scandal and uh, his, his response to Jody Wilson-Raybould's concerns, uh, or maybe his lack of response to her concerns. Um, I think that is for a certain type of left-of-center voter in this country not necessarily a huge problem in and of itself so much as it is emblematic of trudeau as prime minister being very different from trudeau as he presented himself while he was running to become prime minister Mm -hmm. uh there was a sort of idealism uh that he very much embraced and wrapped himself up in and and this idea that we are going to do politics differently in this country and we're going to do government differently in this country uh i think when you turn around and then have a scandal like snc lavalin has turned into it really serves to underscore the the disappointing conduct in the eyes of of many people on the left who decided that they would back the liberals in 2015 uh that things really haven't changed all that much right you know what it Uh, it reminds me of chris rock who's my absolute favorite comedian now but he said when you go out on a date with somebody you're not meeting that person you're meeting their representative it's after you're married to them. That's when you actually meet the person. But when you're dating them, you're only meeting their representative. And they're, I'm going to use that as a, as a loose metaphor for what you just said. That's a very good analogy. You, you summed it up better than I was doing. So I appreciate <laughs> uh, Chris Rock that. did, not me. Well, fair. <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for the time. Great, great bit. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Roy. All the best. Ian Holloway from uh, Angus Reed. So that's not. Good news for Mr. Trudeau, and and if the conservatives are at 38%, that's getting pretty close to majority government. I think around 40% is when you start looking at majority government territory. But again, it all depends on how it breaks down regionally in Canada with the numbers of seats that are in particularly Ontario and Quebec. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.